Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome Tournament of Roses Senior Event Manager and producer of the LA Pride Parade, Mariella Spilari. Born in Guatemala and raised in New York, Mariella comes from a hardworking and supportive family and these role models have been critical to her success in one of the most stressful jobs imaginable. After graduating from Bentley University, she embarked on a career in large-scale event planning at Macy's, where she worked on such iconic events like Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and Fourth of July fireworks. Following a move out west, Mariella joined the Tournament of Roses in 2018, organizing one of the most recognizable parades in the world. The Rose Parade. The following year, a chance conversation led her to her second job, producer of the LA Pride Parade. In this conversation, we talk about her influences, what it's like to organize such incredible experiences, and her favorite element of the Rose Parade. Mariella talks about creating joy and how these events have so much heart. As you will hear, Mariella has a parade full of both. So, without further delay, my conversation with Mariella Spolari. Mariella, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show as I find what you do incredible from both a creative and logistics perspective. So, to jump into the conversation, can you share a little bit about your background? As I know that you're, you're born in Guatemala, but that you're from New York. Yes, born in Guatemala, fortunate enough to visit pretty often, but my parents and I moved to New York when I was almost two, about a year and a half, and grew up in the Northeast. I've been in LA for a while, but I still consider myself a New Yorker, and went to school in Boston. Just loved everything about that world. I grew up on Long Island, and Boston felt like a good in-between to not have to throw myself into New York City right away. But I'm just very fortunate for kind of the opportunities that opened up with my parents moving there. There are quite a few people that have been on this podcast that are from New York, so it's nice to hear another New Yorker. You mentioned that you went to Bentley University in Massachusetts and you received your degree in marketing. What did you want to do after college? So I'm always pretty honest about this. I knew I wanted to be financially stable and business in general felt like the right route. I kind of wish I had a little bit more of a liberal arts experience. And I think that's where marketing felt like the hybrid. A lot of the other business courses were so intimidating to me, but marketing allowed me to explore more of my creative side. And while I was at Bentley, the university has an insane amount of extracurriculars and they really push you to get as involved as possible. And I was able to start planning large scale events while I was in college, you know, thousands in attendance. And that's really where I found my love for large scale production. And the marketing side of it just really allowed me to understand the importance of structuring an event. So it's appealing to the audience. I would say I, I learned a lot of that really early on while being at school. 
You've shared that your hardworking parents have been inspirations and role models for you, including your parents. Who are some of your earliest influences or mentors and why were they so important? Honestly, my aunts and uncles, along with my parents, the the leap that they made to move to the U.S. and leave behind their culture, their family, their comfort, the beautiful weather of Guatemala, it's just incredible to me. And they have all sacrificed so much for their children to make sure their children have beautiful lives. And all my cousins and I really do. And of course, there's obstacles and difficulties and different, you would have done things differently, all of that. But we were really lucky to have grown up with family around us. A lot of my my aunts and uncles just have a very entrepreneurial, go-getter kind of spirit that I think has been a huge influence, not to mention they have really beautiful relationships. But from a career standpoint, I really, really lucked out with my first boss. She was an alumni from Bentley as well. And she was so dedicated to being a good mentor to me. This was, I think, over a decade ago, and I still stay in touch with her. She wanted to make sure that I was polished and molded and and really appreciated the experience I was getting at the time. So your career in event planning has taken you across the country, and your interest and passion really evolved at Bentley, like you mentioned. What was it about event planning that you really enjoyed? I love to see the result of hard work. I like having an end product. And with event planning, the behind the scenes is not glamorous. A lot of times it can be very thankless while the planning is happening. But then to have something that's tangible, right? You can see whether it's the impact of the content of an event or the people that are involved, the talent, or even just the scale of production. It's just really incredible to walk away from that. And it's kind of addictive. It's been listed in Forbes as one of the most stressful jobs up there with like firefighters, but it's so rewarding that I think that's what keeps people coming back, going back to it. Well, after college, you joined Macy's, which is one of the most recognizable parade companies in the world as a marketing coordinator, where you worked on the Thanksgiving day parade, the 4th of July fireworks, the flower show and the holiday events. What were some of your earliest challenges working on such large events? And what were some of the best lessons that you took away from that period? I think it's really humbling. You sometimes can feel like if you make a mistake, the whole thing's going to come crashing down. And someone I worked with early in my career, I have a very vivid image of her smoking a cigarette outside the building. I don't even know why I was standing with them because I don't smoke. But And I was expressing concern over something small I had messed up. And she said, honey, this parade is going down the street with or without you. And... I needed that. I needed to be reminded that, yes, I had an impact and an influence, but I wasn't the sole contributor. So kind of that team spirit. I love, love, love collaboration. I love the impact of it, but I also had to learn very quickly how important it was to kind of learn to manage yourself in an event space. I had a fabulous boss. The first one I mentioned was named Stephanie. My other boss, Charnay, she told me very early on, we got along very well, but she said, you really have to work on your poker face. 
And that's hard in events, right? You're stressed and you want to keep it together because it doesn't benefit anyone to freak out, right? So that was a great lesson early on as well, just to kind of keep it together, even if internally there's a lot going on. Well, at Macy's, you worked your way up to special events manager for the Northeast. And as an example of how varied your work has been, you work for the major events like we talked about, but also the smaller ones like local county fairs. Do you have a favorite event that you worked on? And what did you find the most rewarding about it? Oh, it's a really tough question because we had such a variety of events. Some of those smaller reading circles, as we called them, we'd bring in local authors or even very well-known authors. And sometimes we'd get 50 people in attendance and sometimes 10. But just the impact of a parent coming up to you and saying, thank you so much. This was such a great day for my kid. The person in the next New York City block wouldn't have even known this was going on, but it had an impact that day. To put into perspective that that event has as much impact as Beyonce's fragrance launch that brought thousands and was complete chaos. It really was just having an appreciation for both and also an appreciation for the vendors that brought it all together, the people that really put the labor in, that clean up afterwards. I think that's what the variety of events really taught me as well. After almost five years with Macy's on the East Coast, you became a special event manager for the Southwest, a position that you held for another three years. How different was it coming out West? One of the things that really took me aback about exploring the Southwest was how much variety there is out here in terms of the states, the terrain, the temperatures. The Northeast obviously is not the same throughout, but it's very similar. And when I came out here, our territory spanned from Texas to Utah to Nevada to Hawaii. I was able to travel to Hawaii for work. And it was just such a whirlwind of being able to visit so many different states. And all my times with Macy's, plus some personal travel, I visited over 30 states, which I don't, I would not have gotten, I don't think, through many other jobs. And so there was that. But then specifically in LA, I really had to adjust to an audience that doesn't necessarily care about a celebrity. We really had to figure out what the right hosts would be for an event, what would draw people to events, because they're constantly faced with it. So I found that really interesting. Even though New Yorkers, obviously there are big names living in New York, they're kind of in the mix. In LA, I think it's a little more in your face. And so it was that adjustment of like, we were also coming into the YouTube star wave. And then of course, social media just took off. So we went from hiring professional hosts, and that's what they did as a career to hiring a YouTuber who never spoke from the other side of the camera. And that was a huge adjustment as well really having to see this new type of talent that is incredibly talent in the comfort of their own home, but you put them on a stage and they're a little rough, right? So understandably, I mean, it's that's a really tough thing to do to, to host an event or to speak on a panel. It was a big transition in, in talent, I would say. One of your responsibilities was working with millennials. Do younger generations want the same experiences as their parents? No, I mean, w- there's so much more competition 
and when you're vying for attention with older generations or an older audience at the time, and especially 10, 12 years ago, we could just throw a nice event with great food, good music, and a gift with purchase. And we would have a decent audience. Now you're competing with what's streaming, what's what concerts are going on, what's free, what's this, what's that. There's so much to compete with. Recently, some friends and I talked about Woodstock and how incredible it was that without social media and basically word of mouth, obviously I, I didn't live through it, but they were able to have, what, 400,000 people or something insane. And now you have to put so much money behind an event to get that, right? Even Coachella gets comp- true competition these days. So I think the strategy and the marketing and like really understanding the brand that lives in an audience's head is a true skill in itself. One of your roles at Macy's was to try to connect millennials with brands. How do companies connect with younger consumers? A lot of companies obviously had to really pivot to online platforms and the convenience of shopping online. And now putting brands in front of content creators, sending them product is something that works pretty well. That's that's its own dynamic in itself. But trying to get a younger audience in store is tough. I don't envy those in charge of that. But I think more than anything, a brand is mental, right? It can be physical to a degree, but it's most of it is how is a brand perceived in its in in someone's head, right? Like, is Coca-Cola really better than Pepsi? Or is is it years and years of brand work? I mean, I like Coca-Cola more, but they have put so much behind building their brand and the loyalty to it. And so I think that a lot of it is really having control over that narrative. Let's shift a little bit to talk about the Tournament of Roses, which you joined in May of 2018. Why were you attracted to work at the Tournament of Roses in the first place? Well, I came from a very large-scale parade that had big impact at Macy's. And what appealed to me about the Rose Parade and what I've grown to really love about it is that it's internationally known and recognized, but it has heart behind it. It has a very strong community impact. It is Pasadena's parade, right? And I don't know that New Yorkers necessarily feel a like kinship to the Macy's parade the way that, I mean, plenty do, I'm sure, but the way that people in Pasadena feel towards the Rose Parade. And so I found that really interesting. Also discovered that when I was considering all of it, the opportunity that my, my grandfather, my mother's father, I knew he worked in floral exports at one point in his life, but the co-one of the companies he worked for actually exported roses to the Rose Parade at one point, very early on, one of the first major exporters to the Rose Parade. And so there were little ties like that, that just kind of made it enticing for me. So what was that transition like between Macy's and the Rose Parade? And how is your job different? Macy's is a massive company. It was rare to see the CEO or run into them. And when you did, it was like, 
seeing a unicorn. And there was a lot of opportunity there. I made tons of friends that I still consider some of my closest friends today. But with the Rose Parade, it's a nonprofit. It's much smaller. I can walk into my CEO's office and have a direct conversation with him. And it doesn't feel like this big to do. So having that type of engagement and transparency, I really appreciated. Plus the staff there, I had never really quite worked with a staff that was just so kind to each other. (laughs) And I mean, I'm not trying to speak poorly of New York, but like everyone just seemed to genuinely like each other and care about each other's personal lives. And of course that happened in my other positions, but it was like a little more one-on-one and in smaller ways. But there are people that have been there for 25, almost 30 years. And that kind of tenure, just you don't see that too often. It was a nice break from city life, even though it's still LA. It is. You're going from a large company like Macy's to a nonprofit like the Tournament of Roses. Do you have to change how you approach your work because of the mission of the entities that you work for are so different? Yes and no. At the end of the day, you're still wanting to produce an impactful event, but I would definitely have more exposure to the foundation side of the Tournament of Roses Foundation. I've been fortunate enough to be able to be on a judging panel for scholarship recipients have worked with partners and their involvement in toy drives and clothing drives. And there was some opportunity for that with Macy's, but I think I see the impact more on this side. I work near the people that do that work. Whereas with Macy's there, it's so large, there's just big gaps. So obviously there's plenty of similarity, but I think it's been really interesting to get more exposure to that foundation side. You started working for the Tournament of Roses in 2018, so you were able to experience two years worth of the Rose Parade prior to COVID canceling the 2021 celebration. What was it like working for the Tournament of Roses and then having to cancel the event because of the pandemic? We were fortunate enough that COVID hit pretty early on, so our production wasn't too far along from March to January, but... We had staff members that were furloughed. We took salary cuts. I do really appreciate that the leadership works. We did actually still produce a broadcast just to make sure people didn't miss out on the tradition of waking up and having a beautiful way to kick off their new year. So that was something I did work on, but it it was wild. It was it was really incredible. Everyone has a different experience, but just to have everything come to a halt and to see to be talking to friends and hear of the impacts of having to cancel and change and know the the implication of the people who rely on that income, right? I'm not talking about staff, but I mean like our vendors and our partners and everything. That I think that was probably the hardest part was to know how much of a ripple effect it would have. The Tournament of Roses did a really good job trying to keep that tradition going in 2021. Unlike the 4th of July celebration fireworks at the Rose Bowl, which I felt like was an attempt, but a failed attempt to try to kind of keep the tradition going. So I think that the Tournament of Roses did a really great job in comparison. 
So you should all be commended. Your staff should be commended for that. How has COVID changed how you view large events? It definitely had to make us reassess what needed to come back, what really had an impact, what was important. But I would say after so much time of such limited human interaction, we've seen how badly people yearn for that again and are definitely coming back to that. I mean, this wave of events returning has had a big impact on suppliers and production and stuff because there's like not enough to go around. But it's great to see that there's obviously a lot of psychological impact on the quarantine that everyone went through. But our hope and events, obviously, I'm not trying to disguise the fact that they're money making businesses. But at the end of the day, the hope is that they leave a strong positive impact on the people that attend them. I think a lot of the people I work with and beyond past coworkers would kind of agree with that. The Rose Parade returned to much excitement around town. Operationally, was 2022 any different to plan than previous years? And what was the energy like to have the event back? Oh, yeah, it was a big difference. We had, we were following city ordinance and had to have every single person that hit the route in the Rose Parade either have proof of vaccination or a negative test. And we're talking thousands of people. The route is restricted to just participants and support staff and everything, but it was such a lift on top of planning everything else. And then on top of a new variant coming through and us having to cancel certain events after all the work was put into it, certain ancillary events. So last year in speaking with coworkers had to have been one of the more challenging years that most have experienced, but I would say there was so much gratitude around bringing it back. We had a lot, a lot of positive feedback. People want a sense of normalcy again, even if the new normal is different, just to be able to have that family tradition, something to attend. And again, to like get that new year started off on a positive note. It was a beautiful parade. It was a really exciting Rose Bowl game. The day just overall just left people kind of with this renewed sense of hope. As corny as it sounds, I I do think that there's real truth to that. You've described the Rose Parade as not just a one-day event, but rather a week-long celebration. Do you have a favorite part of the week? Yes. I am such a sucker for the stories behind the bands that join, the marching bands. There are such incredible stories of how bands come together or what they've survived. The students have gone through, arguably students and teachers, I think have had it the toughest. I'm, I'm biased because my mother is a teacher, but I just love the stories. And BandFest is an event at PCC where you can see all of the marching bands in the Rose Parade perform as if they were performing on their college field. And that's really, really unique because some of these are, most of them are award-winning bands, right? Nationally recognized, if not internationally, you'd have to go out to Alabama, for example, to see them play. And then you can see it here in Pasadena. And it wasn't this past year, but in, in one of the parades, we had a band from Puerto Rico that was hit by, I'm blanking on the 
hurricane's name when they were hit by two hurricanes that year, if you remember. And this poor band was wanted so badly to make it out. And they had just had such an impact because they are given a year and a half. All bands are given a year and a half to fundraise, right? They have to fundraise their travel, their flights, their lodging, everything to get over here. That's very standard for large scale participation like that. It's not just Rose Parade, but a band up in Washington state heard about their story come from an affluent area and fundraised. I'm like getting chills talking about it again (laughs) and fundraised to help this Puerto Rico band make it to Pasadena and simultaneously over video and whatever other technology they choreographed a performance for the two of them to perform at Banfest because they knew they were going to figure it out and make it out. I also, we had a, uh, an airline partner. I want to say it was Southwest that also flew them out and helped with the flights. And so it was just such an underdog story. And when they performed, everyone was crying. It was just an incredible, incredible experience. So it's things like that, that I just feel like you don't even know what that one solo marcher has gone through to get there. Right. So I definitely have an affinity to that part of the parade. It's interesting that you mentioned that when we think of the Rose Parade, we think of this this large scale event and we see all the bands and all the floats and all the equestrian groups. And like you said, if you take a step back and realize that each member of each band has a story of how they got there. I mean, it's completely overwhelming when you think about not on that scale. Yeah, and all the all the hardship that they've had, all the things that they've had to do to get themselves there. I mean, it's pretty incredible. It's amazing. It's so insane to think about. Not just if you're hit by a natural disaster, but just a lot of these students have never even left their hometowns, and to be coming to California. Sometimes they coordinate a Disney trip, or they we have a band cares program where they'll perform or work with an underserviced organization underserved and that in itself like they're just life-changing experiences for a lot of these students and it opens up their world it's pretty cool as an event organizer can you really enjoy the event while it's going on yes and i have to revert back to that boss i had who she would make us stop and really appreciate what we're experiencing or even before when we're like in the craze, trying to make sure everything's in place in time and freaking out because some rental didn't show up, she would say, don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to have fun. Right. And it's such a small thing. And I'm sure many times we'll dismiss it like, okay, can we just get back to setting up? But I try really hard during any event in the middle of it to just appreciate what has happened and what it took to get to that place and the impact that it's having. I sincerely do that. And so, and if I don't, it it sticks with me afterwards. Like, did you even look at it? Right. So yeah, it's not easy because you're being pulled in a million directions, but it's so important to just take the time to like, thank yourself for what you're doing, whether you're helping a nonprofit or you're just helping people have fun and have a good time. It can be very rewarding for sure. When we think of the Rose Parade, we think of, you know, the January 1st event, but there are also events, smaller events that take place during the year. 
like the Youth Empowerment Forum that you recently hosted that featured industry leaders and a panel discussion that's designed to engage and inspire youth. How do these events complement the Tournament of Roses and your commitment to the community? A big initiative of the team is to make sure the tournament really loses that intimidation factor. We work at the Wrigley Mansion. It's literally a mansion. It can be very intimidating, understandably. That's something I learned when I when I moved here. But these community events really just try to open the doors and and let especially the younger audience know that we're there as a resource, as a community partner, that there are job opportunities, internship opportunities. And so this gen, for example, featured incredible talent. We work on it several, several months in advance. We had around 250 students attend this last spring and we hosted it on our grounds. And we had a lot of comments from students saying, I didn't even know you could come here. Like, I didn't even know it was okay to step foot here. And the tournament gardens are actually public gardens. And a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that. Right? It's not intentionally a well-kept secret, but it is so nice for those that do know because they'll bring their pets through, they'll picnic, they'll come take prom photos, and it's beautiful property. And so I think events like that really invite the community to just be able to enjoy this piece of Pasadena. We also have a Dia de los Muertos event, Day of the Dead, and that's coming up in the fall. That actually awards, it, it's an art competition, art contest for local students, but I think it actually expands well beyond the Pasadena area. And last year when we hosted that event, similarly, there were plenty of families that came through that had never even come close to, to visiting. And so the hope is that it becomes more, it feels like more of an accessible organization because there's a lot of community work that goes on. And it's just such a funny juxtaposition because I just, I don't find any of the staff intimidating or the members. It's a very like inviting place for the most part. So I, hopefully those will continue those events. Um, they are sponsored. So that helps just kind of drive the mission a little more. So because the Tournament of Roses hosts the large event that we know on January 1st and also some more intimate events, do you like planning the intimate events or smaller events more than the large parades? Or do you think of them as kind of equals? Oh, they're just they're just so different. I mean, if you haven't caught on to this already, I, I can be very corny about stuff and I, I embrace that, but they have a different place in my heart, right? So like for me, Dia de los Muertos and this gen... And some of the other events have a more personal impact because I can see the direct influence that they have culturally too. I mean, I didn't actually grow up celebrating Dia as we call it. And so I, it was a lot of a learning curve for me, but I obviously grew up with very strong Central American influence. And so I understood it to a degree, but I had a lot of respect for it. Large scale events, it's just a different beast. It's to walk away from a parade and everyone be congratulating and hugging. And it just has, there's less intimacy, I guess, to it, but you still come off with like this natural high from it. And there's a wider range of impact from them as well. I definitely appreciate and know that there's, for me, there's value in my work being something that people are familiar with. I 
I don't know if it's vain or not, but like, I like that I can say where I work and people know it, right? I've just always enjoyed that. It's a rewarding thing. I work really hard. So I don't think I'm not taking credit for <laughs> from someone else's work. But yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it there it's just a different experience for sure. After launching this podcast in October of 2020, I knew I needed a tool to record the show that would be easy for both myself and my guests. I also wanted a tool that had great audio quality. So I'm excited that the podcasting tool that I've used since the early days of this show, Zencaster, is a sponsor. Not only does Zencaster provide studio quality sound, but it also features awesome HD recordings if you want to upload shows to YouTube or someplace else. What I love most is that Zencaster records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests, so the editing process is a lot more customized. Plus, there's secured cloud backup, so you never lose an interview, post-production is a simple click away, and a transcript is even auto-generated. It's super easy to use, there's nothing to download, my guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to Zencaster.com pricing and enter promo code the Crown City Pod to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. You also get a 14-day free trial. Zencaster is the modern web-based solution for the everyday and professional podcaster, and I am proud to have them as a sponsor. Now back to the show. So in addition to your work at Tournament of Roses, you became a producer at the LA Pride Parade in April of 2019. How did your work for LA Pride come about and why was it important to get involved in their mission and celebration? So it was interesting that connection came about unexpectedly. I thought that I was just going to be having a conversation with someone. I thought they just had questions about a parade. I didn't realize they were actually hiring a producer at the time. And so it went from having a conversation to basically being interviewed. But I I was seeking work that I would find personally fulfilling. And it just so happened to be the peak season for Pride is uh, the off season for Rose Parade. And my boss at the time told me, go for it. Like, this could mean a lot to you. Growing up with a, a queer sibling, I just know that there is such an impact on making sure people feel a sense of support and community. I'm not going to speak for him, but having supportive parents can be very rare in that world, which my parents are. And so I think in the, all the time that I've worked with LA Pride, it has such an impact on people. Someone once said to me, it could be the only day all year or the only weekend all year that someone experiences kindness. And that just really rocked me because... It might just seem like a day to party, but when you're really there and you're in the thick of it, it has so much more of an effect than that. So the work itself, I feel very close to the community. I feel very genuinely a a strong allyship, and it's an honor to be able to produce and direct the parade for them. Do you have to change your process for planning LA Pride versus the Rose Parade? I mean, how similar and how different are they? Rose Parade has a lot of volunteer support, member support. 
And I have a very specific role within that. We also have commercial builders that build the units within the parade. The LA Pride Parade, we had 135 contingents this year, meaning it could be 300 marchers, it could be a float, it could be a government official in a vehicle that each count as one contingent. So there were 135 of them, and they all are coming from different angles, different builds, different vendors, different types of support. But I will say there's such an appreciation for being involved. Like they are just so happy to be there. For sure the same with Rose Parade, but it's different, right? There's a sense of like some organizations, they'll create an employee resource group and it'll be their first pride. And they've worked for months to get this together and design shirts and all this stuff. And so there's just such a love that goes into it. Operationally, it's a lot more on my shoulders. (laughs) I have an incredibly supportive team that works day of. A couple of them help me in advance. It's almost all women with the exception of one person that produces the LA Pride Parade, which is, I think, interesting in itself and very impressive. And these are people from all factors of my life that I've worked in events with before, or I just know are very talented operationally. So yeah, it's a totally different beast, but I pour a lot of myself into it for sure. You've been involved with event planning for a long time. Knowing all that you know now, what is some advice you would give to your younger self if they were just starting out in the business? I wish I could be easier on myself for sure. I'm sure plenty of people wish that. I, I'm a very ambitious person. I get that from my parents. My mom is very ambitious. She has a bachelor's degree and two masters, and she got that all after the age of 50. I wish sometimes, I don't regret anything necessarily, but to kind of take a step back and enjoy what I'm going through versus being like, what's next? What's next? What's next? I have to be better. I have to make more money. I have to do this. My dad really ingrained in us that we have to put our happiness first. And that has always helped me a lot in my career when I feel like I'm getting to a place where I'm unhappy or unfulfilled. I don't just sit in it, right? I don't find any that productive at all. So when I felt that kind of itch coming along with a position, I started to think of what's next. But it's a lot to put on yourself at a a young age. When you think about the next five years, 10 years and beyond, how do you see events like the ones that you work on evolving? And what role do you see yourself playing in it? I think with Rose Parade, there's a very tricky balance of keeping tradition, but also bringing in a younger audience. I hope to still be part of that conversation of how do we make this appealing and relevant to a younger group. I think the ancillary events help with that. And with Pride, I just have seen such growth in what the organization was able to do this year, moving to Hollywood, really trying to be more inclusive of the community beyond its original footprint. And I also hope to be part of that evolution I think it's going to be interesting to see, and I'm taking this from a friend, how companies go from URL to IRL, as she would say, and really melding the digital side of things. You can't ignore that. I always want to be part of the conversation. I want to be able to have as much impact as possible with a collaborative spirit for sure, but I hope to be able to continue to have impact where I can. And really be able to grow some of these events, not just in attendance, but in 
content and scale and just being able to stay relevant, it's hard. It's hard from any any degree, right? But but yeah, I appreciate getting some of the platforms that I get to do this type of work. And as as my life evolves, I hope to have kids and get married and all that. I have a very, very supportive partner. And I think, yeah, that I just I just am able to stay a part of all of it. Well, I thought we would close with some fun questions. First being, what is the best parade that you've been to, either as an organizer or as a spectator? Macy's and Rose Parade have their own really beautiful moments, but I have to say Pride has been the most impactful for me. It's made me the most emotional. LA Pride Parade was so impactful because I think you have a tendency to look for your people and I saw so many Latino families that I hadn't really previously seen, especially being in Hollywood. I think that made a big difference, but that to me, I hope is just a signal of the evolution of the culture to be more supportive and more inclusive. I've also been to some really incredible small town parades. I actually went through work through Macy's had to go to Hastings, Nebraska for the Kool-Aid day parade. (laughs) Kool-Aid was invented in Hastings. Like, when would I ever get that opportunity? <laughs> and you just, parades have a lot of heart. I joke, I always say, like, I, I didn't, was never a parade nerd. I don't know how I got into this world. I genuinely don't. But I think it's just the heart behind it. Well, there are so many fun parts to the Rose Parade. Do you have a favorite element, either the band, the floats, the horses, etc.? The bands. It really just comes back to that for me. They put so much behind this they got to break in their new shoes they have so many hours of rehearsal the band directors they become like second parents to these students and they are just incredible to watch they're so talented I barely made it through ninth grade playing the trumpet and (laughs) they are just really really an awesome element and I I say all this I don't even work directly with the bands like I work with the floats so for the sake of my job, yes, the floats are incredible for sure. It's its own artistry. But I, yeah, I, I'm a sucker for a good story. When the parade is over and the crowds have left, what do you want them to take away from the experience and how do you define success? Oof, that's a loaded one. I, I just hope that the parade has made a positive impact on someone's day whether they were able to spend it with a grandparent or it was worth wrote with the Rose Parade dealing with the cold in the morning, right? That it's just worth it. That for that day, they just felt like sheer joy. That to me has such a strong impact, especially with everything that goes on in, in the world. And success, the success that I've experienced, I I have the true, true fortune of having parents that revel in my success. And if I'm making someone proud, I come home and my boyfriend thinks what I've done is the coolest thing, or my siblings are very vocal about their support. I think that to me is such a, such a gift, right? To make other people proud. Monetary success is, is great. And, and that has its own value for sure. But just to be able to make a name for myself and make, like I said, like 
the sacrifice that my parents had made to make that worth it. That's the most I can hope for. Well, thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena, for bringing so much joy to the, to our city and the world through your work at both the Rose Parade and Ellie Pride, and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was it was truly a great conversation, and uh, I just appreciate the opportunity. My many thanks to Mariella for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation because it's great to meet people in the community that create magic. For us spectators, parades, especially the Tournament of Roses here in Pasadena, is several hours long. But for Mariella and her team, it's years in the making. It's hard work to bring joy to our lives, and in the case of the LA Pride Parade, is not only a celebration, but an important recognition and identity. So the next time you hear the bands thunder down Colorado Boulevard, or the floats rumble across Pasadena, think of Mariella and her desire to bring joy to the world. For more information and to support Mariella's work, you can visit tournamentofroses.com and lapride.org. Even though it might seem like it sometimes, this show is not a solo act. There are many people that helped me along the way. First, I wanted to thank Tiffany Goodwin Van Camp for introducing me to Mariella. Second, I wanted to thank my Patreon sponsors, Jess and Albert. Third, thank you to my family for their love and support to keep this project alive and well. And finally, to all those that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. This episode marks number 30. I recently read that 90% of podcasts don't get past episode 3. And 90% of those left quit after episode 20. If these numbers are real, then the Crown City Podcast is in the top 1% in the world. And I don't intend to quit anytime soon. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. Or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, enjoy life's parade, and as always, see you around town.